This is Category 5 Technology TV. Welcome to the show. Episode number 438. And it is Tuesday, the 9th of February, 2016. So nice to have you here. Hey, it is me, Robbie Ferguson, here with you tonight. We're going to be spending the evening together. going to be the quickest hour of our week. I practically guarantee you I was just sitting on the edge of my seat waiting for this to begin, just like you. And uh, now it's gonna it's gonna fly right by. Tonight we are celebrating 20 years of the GNU Image Manipulation Program, continuing our series, 20 weeks of GIMP tips. And tonight I'm gonna actually be moving a house. We're also going to be installing Raspbian Jesse on the Raspberry Pi microcomputer. It's gonna work this week, I guarantee it. That's why we buy wooden desks, people. Uh, And uh, we are going to expand the file system to make sure that we are utilizing, with our Raspberry Pi, all of the capacity of our micro SD card. Very important little fact there. We're going to touch that tonight, figure out how it's done. Okay, here's what's coming up in the Category 5.TV newsroom. A GPS error caused 12 hours of problems for a number of companies. The latest update for the iPhone 6 is rendering phones inoperable if they were serviced by a third party. A social engineering hack on the U.S.'s Department of Justice and Department of Homeland Security is being downplayed. No surprise. Watch where you fly your drone. A man is being charged for crashing into the Empire State Building after a police officer told him, hey, it's all right to fly here. And the new USB-C cables could potentially fry your device. You want to stick around and find out what's going on? The full details are coming up later in the show. This is Category 5 Technology TV. Starring Sasha Dermatis. Hillary Rumble. Kid and your host, Robbie Ferguson. Welcome to the show. This is Category 5 Technology TV, and I am your host, Robbie Ferguson. I feel like because it's just me and you tonight, I need to say technologist. Robbie Ferguson. Ah, does that take you back or what? Want to say hey to our chat room. Beautiful looking group of people there tonight. Jay Lim is joining us uh, after uh, a bit of time away. Also, AQ on the bat. It's nice to see you again. Nelson One, always a pleasure to have you joining us. And we've got a, uh, a rocking chat room tonight. Nice to see Chris joining us again live this week, who uh, usually in the past has been catching us on YouTube. And lots of you actually uh, starting to tune in via YouTube. I want to say, hey, thanks to those of you who catch the show live and then following the show, you go on YouTube, you click the thumbs up button, you click on the, the, the whatever uh, comment and post your comments about the show. That's the whatever. Because you know what? When you watch live or when you watch it on your Roku, it, when you watch the show on Kodi or however you're watching it, if it's not YouTube, sometimes you know people don't see those numbers. So, um, so it's really meaningful when you take the time to say, hey, I watched it on the Roku. I really liked it. So I'm going to head on over to their YouTube channel, find that episode and click the like button or the thumbs up in this case and uh, maybe comment and, and get, the, get the conversation going. That really helps us out. Hey, speaking of shows, we have been growing here at Category 5 TV. The Pixel Shadow 
has and Mangle Fox seventy is here in the studio with me and uh, in my periphery. She's going like this. Yes, new website is up. Go to minetest.tv. That's M I N E T E S T dot TV. What on earth is Mine Test? You've probably heard of Minecraft. It is a huge game. Uh, and by that, I mean every kid is playing it. And if you're not playing it, well, you got to figure out how to get it. And you know what? Minecraft is a commercial program owned by Microsoft. There is a free open source alternative called Mine Test. You can find out more about it through the Pixel Shadow and right on that website, minetest.tv. Check it out. It's time to support Category 5 TV. You can head on over to our Patreon website. Uh, it's patreon.com slash Category 5. We were talking just a little bit before the show, Rev D. Jank and a couple of viewers in the chat room speaking with me about the fact that, you know what, if it were only, if there were a thousand of us who love Category 5 TV, a thousand people who just say, you know what, I have 25 cents that I could throw into that tip jar every time you do an episode. That's once a week. If you have 25 cents that you could throw into that tip jar, would you be one of those 1,000 people to contribute that way? And that's all it would take. And our bills would be blasted through. We would have everything paid for and anything left over would be used to hire Sasha Dermatis so that she would be here on a Tuesday night. That's how it goes, folks. <laughs> so check it out, patreon.com slash category five. It's a fantastic way to support the show too. And there is some bonus material that is available to you if you subscribe in that way by supporting us. And to boot, we have prizes. And our first prize is actually two prizes. We've got these teeny drones and teeny drones are so much fun to fly. You've seen me playing with it on the show a couple of times and we've done some demonstrations with our, our quadcopters and things for the drone zone. Once I sync it to the remote, these things are a blast, and I want to send you two of these. So the first 100 viewers who support Category 5 TV through our Patreon profile are going to be able to uh, be eligible for the draw to win not one, but two of these micro drones. And these are the best thing to learn on. They're called teeny drones. They are uh, next to indestructible. I mean, they are really, really um, durable. So if you crash them, it's a great way to learn because you don't have to worry about, like, say, a, a $1,000 investment or something like that. These are a lot of fun. I've got two of them to give away to the same person. All you have to do is support us on Patreon to be eligible. The first 100 people will be in that draw. Thank you to those who have been supporting us up until this point. Uh, I just, you know, as a final thought, um, you have been the early adopters of uh, supporting Category 5 TV, be it through Patreon or uh, through supporting us by one-time or, or recurring donations through PayPal. All of these ways, even though I don't always mention the PayPal thing, all of these ways that you support us help to keep the bills paid and uh, really make a difference here at the show. We're looking forward to an exceptional season uh, as we, you know, here we are, it's, we're uh, February of 2016 already, and uh, we've got some really exciting things to come. Lots of great hardware features. We're going to be doing some more soldering. We're going to be doing some really cool kits with the Raspberry Pi, and uh, tonight we are backtracking and getting going on, uh, getting that all set up with, uh, uh, with our micro SD card. All right, without further ado, Category5.tv is a member of the Tech Podcast Network. If it is tech, it is here. 
cat5.tv slash TPN. Also, the International Association of Internet Broadcasters. You'll find us there, cat5.tv slash IAIB. Hey, chat room, and hey to you. And uh, hey, if you like the show, comment below. Give us the thumbs up. Give us the like. Give us the five out of five stars. Whatever it takes. Share the love. Let people know. Tweet us. Tweet about us. Thank you to Chris for tweeting today. Hey, make sure you check out this show. Um, Cat5.tv. Category 5 TV. Let's get right into it. We're going to jump into our Raspberry Pi feature. If you're not familiar with the Raspberry Pi, I'm not talking about a delicious thing that you put in your face. I'm talking about a delicious thing that you put in your server cabinet or something like that. Or you can even follow my tutorial that we did on the show to build yourself a case out of cardstock. I mean, you can build it out of paper if you wanted to. You can buy a case for a Raspberry Pi for like five bucks. You can get all kinds of great peripherals if you go to cat5.tv slash pi. What's all this talk about pie? Okay, that's, I said what it isn't. What is it? It's a microcomputer. Check this out. I've got it all hooked up, ready to go tonight. But this little circuit board, I've got it kind of exposed so that we can play with it and, and I can show it off. You can put it in a homemade case like we did here on the show. Um, you can buy a case for it that's a little more solid, uh, something that's made out of PVC, for example. Um, but this little microcomputer's got a lot of oomph to it, and it's got a lot of um, ability to, to do stuff. I mean, you've got HDMI output. So think, hey, hooking it up to a TV, great. Maybe using an HDMI to DVI adapter so that through that digital signal, you can connect it to a computer screen and turn this into a microcomputer. It's got Ethernet in uh, communication. So you've got um, the ability to plug it directly in, makes it a good server because, uh, hey, it's pretty powerful for what it is. And it's got direct Ethernet connection, so you're not having to resort to, say, Wi-Fi. However, you can put a Wi-Fi dongle in it if you'd like, because there are four USB ports here. So you could plug in a dongle, uh, which with our kit actually is included, and then you'd have Wi-Fi as well. I prefer to go with the Ethernet because it's a little more reliable, and you always know that it's going to be super fast. It's got the headphone jack output. We use that on a feature here on the show uh, in order to create a Raspberry Pi system for playing music uh, over the PA system at an office. Um, so this is there's so much stuff that you can do with it. What are we doing with it? We're going to build a web server. We got a little we got started on it and what happened is we realized, oh my goodness, we're out of space on our Raspberry Pi even though we haven't really done anything with it and the problem was we hadn't uh, I, I hadn't looked at the fact that when you first deploy Raspbian, that's Debian, and we're using Debian Jesse. Raspbian is a free operating system for your Raspberry Pi. When you first deploy it, it uh, it doesn't fill it doesn't use the whole space of your SD card, your micro SD card. So that brings me to the hard drive portion of the Raspberry Pi. Let's get a look at what actually happens here as far as storage goes. So we've got this little itty bitty card. Can you even see that? I'm going to have to hold it up against the paleness of my face so that you can see this is a 16 gig card and it is ever so cute. Uh, for those of us who have been around for a while, you look at a 16 gig micro SD card and you think, my goodness, that's cool. Because when I was your age, we had RLL and MFM hard drives and they were 30 megabytes and they were huge. Like we're talking, you had to have a 3U case. 
so think about three CD-ROM drives, or I'm saying CD-ROM, three Blu-ray drives, all right, stacked on top of each other. That's how tall the hard drive was. This has exponentially more space on it, and it is hair-thin. Incredible stuff. That's your hard drive for the Raspberry Pi. When I connect it to my computer in order to install the operating system on this little flash drive, I'm going to use an SD card adapter. So if you've got an SD card in your camera, look at the size difference. That's how substantial it is. So this just simply goes in here. And then you've got basically an SD card. Reminds me of VHS-C, right? How you could just plug that little tape into the bigger tape and it would turn into a VHS cassette. Remember those guys? Since we're reminiscing. Uh, So that's really all there is to it. And that is not the feature. When I said I was going to show you how to make a micro SD card bigger, not what I was talking about. Okay, so through this, (laughs) you plug this in, and we're going to bring up a website called raspberrypi.org. Let's go there together. On raspberrypi.org, click on Downloads, and then you'll see Raspbian. Now, there is Noobs as well, which is pretty cool if you want to set this up as you know a touchscreen OS and play with it. Hey, by all means, it's free. So and you just stick it on a micro SD card and boot it up, and you can then wipe it and boot it up with a different uh, distro. Uh, One of our viewers in the chat room was asking, which distro should I go with? Should I try Mint? Uh, Should I try Raspbian? Uh, Well, Raspbian just brought out a new release today, and I'm pretty impressed with the the quality of it. Um, So I'm kind of leaning toward Raspbian myself because I'm vanilla Debian guy all the way. Um, And Noobs, uh, good comment there from uh, GoodGuy98 in the chat room just reminding us that Noobs actually will give you the option as you boot up to say, hey, do you want to use Raspbian? Yeah, you can do it that way as well. Now, because we're doing a server, the difference is is that we want to go with something called Raspbian Jesse Lite. So the full version of Raspbian, Raspbian Jesse, and probably the one that comes with Noobs as well, is going to be a desktop environment. So it's built so that it looks like a computer interface. You've got your applications, menus. You've got a GUI. You've got multitasking, internet browsers, and things like that. For a server, we just want nothing. We just want it to operate as something that runs in a closet somewhere or hidden away uh, next to our router, and you don't have to ever plug a monitor into it if you don't want to. Um, You can use SSH to remote into it. So you might as well use what's called Raspbian Jesse Lite. And, of course, if you're watching this video well in the future, um, it may be a different version of Raspbian. Jesse is the current one. You can see that as I broadcast this episode, this was released just today. And, in fact, just before the show, I went to download, and it was a dead link. And I was going, no, what's going on? Why is Raspbian not downloading? It turned out they were in the process of updating Raspbian just as I was getting ready to do the show. So it worked out all right. Okay, so in order to get Raspbian, Jesse, and if you want a desktop, hey, by all means, go with the full version. Um, and it's, gonna, it's going to install exactly the same way. But we're just going to download the Lite edition for our server. So we can click on that, and it's going to start throwing that down to our computer. So 
for the sake of the demonstration uh, and the sake of time, I've already downloaded that. I've already set it up on my uh, flash drive as well. We had some problems last week, and I wanted to make sure that we weren't going to hit those snags. Um, so I'm not going to go through that process tonight physically, but I will show you exactly uh, how it's done. So now that you've got that downloaded, let's say, uh, now we plug our micro SD card, which is for our Raspberry Pi. That's going to be the hard drive. And we want it to be at least four gigs, I would say. You, you've got to keep in mind that the operating system itself is going to take up some space, say, you know, a couple hundred meg. And then whatever space is left over, we're going to utilize for any applications, files, and things like that. So I've got a 16 gig card. They're super cheap these days. Go with the best one you can get. Go with a class 10 for a faster card. Um, because uh, what that means, so when you see the C with the 4 in the middle, that means it's a class 4. That means it's really slow. Uh, if you see one that has a 10 with a C around it, that means it's a class 10. That means it's as fast as it gets before it goes into H, uh, HCI, which is the high capa uh, like a super high speed, but your camera has to support it. Not even sure if Raspberry Pi supports it, but it is backward compatible, so it doesn't matter. But as long as you go with C10, class 10, um, you're going to have... Uh, a nice fast card. That's important. So pop that into your micro, uh, your micro SD adapter, plug that into your computer, and then knowing um, what the uh, dev assignment is. So if it's say slash dev slash SDD or whatever it may be, um, you can usually tell that when you first plug in the card, it's going to bring up a window on your Windows or Linux system, and uh, it's going to show you a, a reference um, to what the drive is, so what the mount point is. Um, then you can go to your terminal, type mount, and that shows you a list of all the different mount points. There are various ways to do that uh, to see the uh, dev assignment that we're not going to get into tonight, but I'm assuming that you do know uh, how to determine what this drive is when you plug it into your computer. Okay, so plugging it in, then the next step is uh, now that the card is in our computer, we just simply want to install that image that we've downloaded. Now you notice that when you download it, it comes across as a zip file. And to extract a zip file, you know how that's done. You go into your downloads, you right click on it, and go extract here. And then that will give you an image file. So in our case, we are going to use the DD tool. Uh, we want to be super user because this is going to have hard access to the, uh, to the micro SD card. Uh, so we need to, to be super user. So we use sudo or super user do. And then DD, which is the disk destroyer, a.k.a. disk duplicator, a.k.a. nobody really knows, but it copies disk images to disks and vice versa. So jumping into the DD command, and then we're going to go um, BS, which is block size. If you ever see that, it is not what you think it might be. It's not saying that we're going with 4 million pieces of BS. Um, this is uh, four, uh, 4 meg block size. If you try to do this with a 4 meg block size and it fails or you have any kind of trouble, you can make it a 1 meg block size. It's going to take a lot longer to do, but uh, may resolve that issue if you, have any, if you hit any snags with a 4 meg block size. Okay, so then we're going to go IF, and what that means is in file. What's our in file? So that will be where you uh, give it your file name, and that will be whatever it is that you just downloaded and extracted. In my case, it is this. It may be different for you. Raspbian-jesse.img. And then the next one is OF. 
you can guess from if that of is out file. And then we're going to say slash dev slash, and this is where you have to be absolutely careful. We'd say SDD if that happens to be our micro SD card. Keep in mind that the process that we're about to do is going to wipe um, and destroy the data that is on any destination. So in this case, SDD. Um, so you want to make absolutely sure that this is your card. Okay. If you if you're not sure how to do that, um, let me know. Pop me an email live at category5.tv, and we will make that a separate uh, a separate feature for you, which we may do anyways. So keep in mind this is destructive. You want to make absolutely sure that you are targeting the right device, and then you're going to be actually wiping out the flash drive and installing the operating system onto that flash drive. Once that command is done. So we're going to pretend that I'm hitting enter on that because uh, I have already done this just as a test and making sure that it worked. Uh, So now we want to sync. And all you do is just type sync, just like that. What that does is it just makes sure that everything has been written to your your drive, uh, to all of your USB-connected devices and all that kind of stuff so that you can safely remove them. Um, So sync is an important command to... to, end with and then you can unmount that device and in in our case it would be if it's mounted it's probably not even mounted because you just ran dd on it and if it is mounted it's probably going to fail so you may have had to already do this but um so backing up you might have gone u mount which is unmount for some reason there's no n there but you know what it means u mount slash dev slash sdd one or sdd whatever it might be if it's mounted at all which in your case it probably isn't okay So we've gone through that process. That's just a quick little rundown of how it's done. On Windows, you can download a tool, what is it called? Win32 Disk Imager. And there are links on the Raspbian uh, site. I'll show you where those are just for your sake. Um, If you're on Windows, don't worry. You can can get there too. Uh, Installation guide is right here. Same goes for Mac. Okay. Uh, so if you go down a little bit, you see Linux, Mac, and Windows. I don't use Mac at all. Uh, some of my systems do have Windows. Uh, so if I wanted to do this on Windows, you can scroll down, go to the SourceForge project page, just follow the steps. But it's not as it, it kind of looks more complicated than it is because it's a little bit of a lengthy article. Basically, download this file, unzi- unzip it if it's zipped, install it, and then run the program Win32 Disk Imager as administrator, which is done by simply right-clicking on the icon on your desktop, which is there after installing, and go run as administrator. Then browse to the IMG file, pop in that disk. I guess you should pop in the disk first before you open uh, the imager. Uh, and then that's going to then write um, to that disk, and you're going to have the same effect. So... Moment of truth. Are we ready to boot this thing up? Should we plug this into the Raspberry Pi? And you'll see that I've got an HDMI cable coming out of the Raspberry Pi, and this is going to allow us to see what's coming up on the screen. Another key point um, with uh, our device, this is a kit that, uh, that we sell on our website, um, cat5.tv slash pi, and this has all been assembled. It's, it's, it's really great hardware. It's got a lot of the accessories that you're going to need. As I mentioned, it comes with Wi-Fi. It comes with the heat sinks. It comes with the micro SD with noobs pre-installed and so on and so forth. Um, one of the other uh, products that we carry there is this little guy here. It's called the CyberPower Dual USB Power Station. I love this because it's got a place that you can plug in your uh, display for power, and then it's also got two USB 2.1 amp uh, power outputs via USB. And 
it's all switched. There's a power switch on here so that I can turn on and off uh, the, those devices that are connected to that, including the Pi, with the flip of a switch. So that's kind of brilliant. Uh, and it works really, really well. We did find that if you don't have a good USB cable, that it might not be supplying enough power. So make sure you've got a good USB cable on that as well. Um, but the device provides 2.1 amps, which is more than sufficient for a Raspberry Pi. On the bottom of my Pi here, with all the power off and everything, make sure the power's off. You can see that I've got it connected, but as I mentioned, this particular CyberPower power supply uh, has a, a power switch, so it is completely off right now. And uh, I'm just going to very carefully insert the micro SD and push in. And it kind of has that sinks in and clips in. And then you push it again. You don't pull. If you want to eject it with power off, you push it again, and it now is ejected. Okay? So push to insert. There we go. So now make sure that all your connections are snug. So you've got Ethernet plugged in. You've got your HDMI output if you want it. Um, that's handy because then you can um, see what, uh, what the IP address is. I've just used my router DHCP table, the DHCP pool to tell as well. And now I'm going to fire this up for you. Okay, flipping the switch now. And here comes the Pi. Lights are flashing. There we go. So the Raspberry Pi is a bootin'. And it doesn't take long. So this is booting in. Uh, basically, this is Debbie and Jesse um, that, that we're seeing boot up here. It's just structured for the Raspberry Pi. Goes through a couple of things. There we go. We're in. It's done. That's all there was to it. What? Okay, so how do we now work with it? Now, of course, if you've got this hooked up to a TV or a monitor, you could plug in a USB keyboard and mouse, and you could actually use it like a computer. There are four USB ports. What I'm going to do, however, is uh, we're going to go about it a different way. We're going to use SSH. So it's a tool that is available for you on Linux, right out of the box. On Mac, same thing. And on Windows, you can just download a program called Putty, P-U-T-T-Y, and that will allow you to SSH in exactly the same way. So let's bring up an SSH window, well, basically a terminal window. Through my terminal, I'm going to use the SSH command. So, doo -doo -doo, there we go. So I know that the IP address of my Raspberry Pi is um, 192.168.0.105. So what I'm going to do is go SSH. Notice I don't need super user because I'm actually just connecting into it. And then I'll control it from there. The user out of the box is called Pi. So we type Pi at. So that, that's the username at and then the IP address, which is 192.168.0.105. It'll be different for you. Okay, hit enter. And now it's asking me for a password. So I, uh, what is my password? I just installed this. I have no idea. It's Raspberry. But don't forget the P. Raspberry. All right? Watch the spelling, folks. All lowercase. R-A-S-P-B-E-R-R-Y. Enter. All right, we are in. Let's do a quick... Oh, look at that. Debian GNU Linux. What? Let's do a quick one for you. Uname-A, for those of you who love it. 4.1.17. SMP kernel. Running ARM GNU Linux. Beautiful. All right. Watch this. Disk-free-H. So DF space dash human readable output. Tells me that dev root is only 1.3 gigs, but wait a minute, I put a 16 gig card in that. 
I put a 16 gig card in and I've only got 1.3 gigs. I've only got, you ready for this? 281 megabytes available. My file system is already 77% used and I haven't even done anything yet. Right after the news tonight, folks, we are going to look at how we can get that fixed. Use up all, we're going to start using all 16 gigs of that micro SD card without fail. We are not going to have to go through this complicated procedure that is available online. I'm going to show you a way that you can do it in under 10 seconds. What? So stick around. In the meantime, we're going to jump right over to the newsroom through the magic of television. It's Tuesday, February the 9th, 2016, and here are the stories that we're covering this week. A GPS error caused uh, 12 hours of problems for a number of companies. All of your iPhones are belong to us. Hey, if you've had your iPhone 6 serviced by a third party, you might break it if you try to update. A social engineering hack on the U.S.'s Department of Justice and Department of Homeland Security is being uh, downplayed. What? There's a surprise. Watch where you fly your drone. Check this out. A man was being charged for crashing into the Empire State Building after a police officer told him it was okay to fly there. Didn't, didn't tell him that it was okay to crash into the building. That's the key point here. Maybe. We'll find out more. And also, those new USB-C cables, they could potentially fry your device. So stick around. I'm going to tell you what you need to watch out for uh, when choosing your cable. These stories and more coming up. Don't go anywhere. You've got mad skills. Now hone them. Learn new skills or improve your existing ones with online video tutorials and training from lynda.com through our special link at cat5.tv slash lynda. Learn software, technology, creative, and business skills you can use today to help you achieve your professional goals. Join today and start learning. We'll give you this chance to try it absolutely free with unlimited access to all of the courses. Sign up now for free, cat5.tv slash linda. I'm Robbie Ferguson, and here are the top stories from the Category 5.TV newsroom this week. Several companies were hit by hours of system warnings after 15 GPS satellites broadcast the wrong time, according to time-monitoring company Kronos. Kronos. Hmm. The company observed problems last week after noticing some GPS time signals were 13 microseconds out. Such a discrepancy is considered severe, and several Kronos Telecom's clients faced 12 hours of system errors. Previously, the GPS errors had been blamed for disturbances with BBC radio broadcasts. According to the U.S. Air Force, a.k.a. USAF, which manages the GPS satellite network, problems began when a satellite named SVN-23 was de decommissioned. A, UA a USAF spokeswoman, that's a, it's not supposed to be a tongue twister, but for some reason it feels like one. A USAF spokeswoman confirmed that the error had been pushed out from the ground. Kronos Chief Executive Professor Charles Curry said telecommunication companies relied on the accuracy of these time measurements to control the flow of data through their networks. The bits and bytes of telephone calls, for example. Uh, th they might be synchronized based 
on the time that's reported by GPS satellite signals. When the 13 microsecond error had been detected, it resulted in thousands of system warnings being activated at some companies. The USAF says that while the software issue is still resident on the ground systems, uh, Second Space Operations Squadron has implemented procedures to ensure the issue does not recur. The latest software update for the iPhone 6 handset is rendering the devices useless if it detects that repairs were carried out by someone other than Apple. The problem is known as Error 53, and it's appeared in Apple products before. The Guardian reports that users' phones were disabled after the Touch ID home button was repaired by a non-Apple engineer. Apple has confirmed that this error message is a security measure taken to prevent fraudulent transactions. Apple advises that if a customer encounters Error 53, they are encouraged to contact Apple support. U.S. authorities have acknowledged a data breach affecting the Department of Justice and Department of Homeland Security, but downplayed it severely. A hacker, or perhaps a hacking group, published via Twitter that they said uh, what they said were about 9,000 records of Homeland Security employees. According to technology news site Motherboard, the hacker has said that he will soon share the personal information of 20,000 Department of Justice employees, including staff at the FBI. The news site said it had verified small portions of the breach, but also noted that some of it uh, appeared to be either incorrect or perhaps outdated. In a statement, Homeland Security told journalists, and this is a quote, We take these reports very seriously. However, there is no indication at this time that there is any breach of sensitive or personally identifiable information. Back it up a little bit there, Homeland Security. What about the 9,000 names and numbers? The Department of Justice also downplayed the breach's significance. The hacker is understood to have used simple human engineering to bypass one stage of the authority's security systems. Could boil down to training. Motherboard quoted the hacker who explained, So, I called up, told them I was new, and I didn't understand how to get past the portal. They asked if I had a token code. I said no. They said, that's fine. Just use ours. A man charged with crashing a drone into the Empire State Building claims that a policeman had told him it was fine to fly there. Police say a drone hit the New York skyscraper's 40th floor and then fell onto a ledge five levels lower. Sean Riddle was charged with reckless endangerment and illegal navigation of an aircraft in and over the city. The man is also blamed, uh, or pardon me, he blames a year-old news article for its misleading information. He said in a tweet, All I wanted to do was shoot five seconds of video to promote a non-profit. I asked a cop 20 minutes before I did it. He said it was fine. Aside from asking a cop, I went to this website, where to fly a drone in New York City legally. However, U.S. drones are being er, uh, U.S. drone owners are being urged to consult the No Before You Buy uh, <laughs> No Before You Fly website, backed by drone makers as well as the Federal Aviation Administration, which shows the Empire State Building and much of the rest of Manhattan has been designated as a restricted zone because of its heliports and helipads. 
bad on who, right? Um, okay, when you're using Google, there's a tool under search options that allows you to change to articles that have been posted in the past hour, 24 hours, week. You can actually set the time. So if you're doing a search like that where it's obviously, I mean, the guy knows that he might be breaking the law, let's use that tool to make sure that we're looking at something that's a little more current than a year old. But then again, even if it was legal, I don't think it's okay to crash it into the building. Maybe somebody who is not a very good pilot shouldn't be flying in a populated area, my opinion. The gadget world is slowly adopting a new power cord standard. It's called USB Type-C. They're small, multi-purpose, universal, reversible, and they might fry your hardware. The advantage of the new standard is that USB-C isn't owned by any one company, and that means anyone can manufacture those cables for cheap. The disadvantage, because of that, well, they might wreak havoc with your devices. Cheap power cords are nothing new. You can go onto Amazon or even walk into a dollar store and buy micro USB standard cables for smartphones, for example. But the new USB-C cords are capable of supplying much more power to your devices uh, than standard micro USB, for example, 5 volts versus, you know, a lot more. Um, If you charge your smartphone by plugging your USB-C cord into your laptop, a faulty cord could actually drain your device far more quickly, um, draw a lot more power from that laptop than it was designed to supply, and possibly destroy it and your smartphone connected to it pretty much instantly. There's no turning back. The cords are supposed to recognize what kind of device they're sucking power from. For example, if a USB-C cord is plugged into a wall socket, it's going to crank up the juice versus if you plug it into your laptop, it's going to tone it down a bit. That's not what happened to Google engineer Benson Leung. Uh, While testing a 3M USB-C cord, his $1,500 laptop turned into a very expensive piece of toast. The cord had been wired incorrectly. Mr. Leung has since taken it upon himself to take the manufacturers to task, reviewing several of the cords with the hopes of preventing this from happening to someone else. Based on his research, buying more expensive cables is generally a good idea, but an expensive cord doesn't necessarily mean that your gadgets are going to be safe, and blindly simply spending extra money as a way of ensuring your device's safety, that's pretty silly. That's no guarantee that your device isn't going to be destroyed. The good news, though, is that uh, the USB-C standards uh, setting group, they're called uh, the USB Implementers Forum. They're issuing a seal of approval for safe USB-C devices, uh, cords especially. Since those logos don't show up anywhere on Amazon's website, though, your safest bet might uh, might be to actually walk into a brick-and-mortar store where you can physically see the logo on the box. Otherwise, you could ask in the product description uh, or the product uh, question section on your favorite uh, purchasing site and then make sure that the the logo is present when the device actually arrives. Big thanks this week to Roy W. Nash and our community of viewers for submitting stories to us. If you found a news story that you'd like us to mention, make sure you email it to newsroom at category5.tv. For all of your tech news with a slight Linux bias, visit the category5.tv newsroom. It's newsroom.category5.tv. For the category5.tv newsroom, I'm Robbie Ferguson. 
Welcome back. This is Category 5 Technology TV. I'm Robbie Ferguson, your host. And tonight we are looking at the Raspberry Pi as a uh, micro server. And uh, that's pretty exciting. Before we get back into it, I want to say hello to Thanwell, who hasn't been with us for about two years' time and has returned to us and is joining us in the chat room tonight. Also, I have not had a chance tonight yet to say hello to Lena on the bat. It is a pleasure to have you joining us in the chat room as well. Nelson, we hear you. The brick wall's gotta go. All right, jumping back into it. What have we done? We've got our Raspberry Pi booted up. It is just standing by, waiting for us to do whatever it is we need to do. But we learned one thing. If we connect to it and we take a look at how much drive space is free, well, what do we get? Not a lot. We are using 77% of the capacity of this 16 gig card, but wait, it's only 1.3 gigs according to DF-H. What on earth is going on? If I start to install things, guess what's going to happen? I experienced it. Uh, I got Apache on there. I got MariaDB on there. I got uh, CSF on there. And then it died because we maxed out the hard drive space completely and ended up corrupting the file system. So you look on Google and you start searching for how to extend the root file system of a Raspberry Pi. And we've got a tutorial. One, two, three, four, five. This is legit. Six, seven, eight. And then just the end of the forum. Eight full printed pages. Did not mean to waste trees. I will recycle this. Don't you worry. I'll use the backs as scrap. Eight pages to make this happen. And I said, ain't nobody got time for that. So then I set out and I found a command that is going to save your day. And I can't believe I didn't know about this. And... Maybe someone in the community said, why don't you just use this command? Having booted up our Raspberry Pi, there is one thing that you absolutely have to do right out of the box when we've installed Raspbian. And I'm about to show you this. This is the five-second way to expand your file system on a Raspbian Raspberry Pi. Here we go. All we need to do is type, what do we need first? Sudo because we need to be super user to manipulate the file system. R-A-S-P, Raspbian, right? Raspy-config, Raspy-config, enter. There are 10 options here. The first one, expand file system. Ensure that all of the SD card, which is exactly what we're looking for. Okay, you ready for it? We're going to count. And I'm going to hit enter on expand file system in three, two, one, go. Done. Root partition has been resized. The file system will be enlarged upon the next reboot. Well, okay, we're using 77% of our file system right now. Let's choose finish. Would you like to reboot now? Let's say yes. And now you're going to see that uh, the Raspberry Pi, oh, it's gone to sleep on the, uh, on the HDMI end. So I don't have any screen to show you, but it is now rebooting. Here it comes. 
there. So now it's on the boot up process. I lost my connection over SSH. That's why I wanted to bring up the HDMI. Thank you, Magewell, for making such fantastic capture cards that we can plug in DSLRs, Raspberry Pis, laptop computers, anything with an HDMI output, I can bring it into Wirecast. That's Magewell. All right. It's coming along. It's almost booted. And done. Back at SSH, let's hit the up key on our keyboard. That's going to give us the last command we entered. And then what was our password? Raspberry. All right. The command that we want to type now that we have rebooted is DF-H. Hit enter. We are now using 7% of our hard drive, a.k.a. that 16-gig micro SD. Look at that. We've got 14 gigs available. Our drive is showing as 15 gigs in human-readable format. You'll see that if I take away the dash H, it's going to show us that it's 15316452. We're now using 7%. We're ready to get started blasting our way through um, our Raspberry Pi build to create an incredible Debian, a.k.a. Raspbian, um, headless server for hosting websites, for doing all kinds of fun stuff. Uh, It's going to be powered by a Raspberry Pi, and you can get one at cat5.tv slash pi. Before we wrap up this particular feature tonight, let's jump back into that command just to give you a quick skinny on what we can do with sudo space raspy-config. So after we've done the expand file system, what do we want to do? We want to change the user password. That is going to ask me for the new user password. So here we go. All it does, now we're going to go, I'm going to say, I'm going to enter a really secure password. There we go. We have now changed the password. Okay? So you don't want to leave your Raspberry Pi with the Raspberry password at all. Because what's going to happen then is that somebody is going to be able to get access to your Pi as soon as you connect it to the internet. Because it's so easy to guess because it's the default. So change it immediately, make it something really strong, and, uh, and then go from there. Now I'm safe. Nobody can hack me now, right? We'll look at CSF again as well. Then you can go through different boot options if you want. I think we're pretty much done. Wait for network at boot if you like. Internationalization if you speak a different language. If you want to enable a camera, Raspberry Pi supports that. If uh, you want to set it up to monitor wildlife or use it as a surveillance system, it's all available to you. You can also, right here, go overclock. And hey, be aware that this is going to probably reduce the lifetime of your Raspberry Pi. If you're okay with that, they're pretty cheap. What do you want to do? Well, I can go with one option, I guess. Uh, High. I can go up 100 megahertz. That's something. No, it's 250 megahertz. So I guess it's twice as... No. What? I don't know. Choose overclock preset. Set overclock to high. So I guess I'm overclocking now. I probably don't want to do that. You might. Maybe you don't mind. What does overclocking do? It basically makes it faster at the expense of possibly getting a little hotter, possibly damaging hardware if you go over, but because this is a part of the settings, we can kind of trust that it's the safest way to do it, even though it's not technically um, safe. So we're going to wrap up that feature now. Um, That is called raspy-config. 
and that's R-A-S-P-I-Config. For those of you who are listening uh, on, say, Stitcher, or if you're listening on your iDevice through iTunes, that's it. We're done. Using all the space of our Raspberry Pi microcomputers, micro SD. Get yours at cat5.tv slash pi. We've got all of the uh, additional components like that power unit that, uh, that I was showing you. We've got that for you there as well. This is Category 5 Technology TV. Welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you here. My name is Robbie Ferguson, and for the next couple of minutes, we're going to be taking a look at the GNU Image Manipulation Program. We've been getting a fantastic response on this series. I appreciate everyone who's been emailing me, commenting on YouTube. And a lot of people are saying, hey, have you got these available so that I can watch just the GIMP series? We're 12 episodes in now. And is there a way that we can actually tune in without having to watch the full one-hour show? Well, there is, and we're working on it. Now, it's started up. You can go to linuxtechshow.com, click on playlists, and from there, you're going to see the, uh, the 20 weeks of GIMP tips series. Now, we're working right now, I'm working on editing it out of all of these episodes so that you have access to all of these right on that website, which takes you to YouTube, of course. Um, Now, it's not quite there yet as of today's episode, but we will have those there for you. So right now, there are a couple there. Make sure you subscribe to linuxtechshow.com. And that's a way that you can find uh, all of these features. Another viewer asking if uh, we're going to take a look at the single, uh, the single um, window mode of the GNU image manipulation program, which we've done. And again, it's going to make it a lot easier for you to find that one once I've got that on linuxtechshow.com. That feature, of course, was when we talked about the GIMP user interface. We covered a lot of stuff in there, including the single user mode. All right, tonight I told you we're going to move a house. What do I mean by that? Well, I've got two pictures. First of all, let's get the, uh, the licensing out of the way. We've got a picture of a cabin. It's called Valley Forge Cabin, and it is provided to us by R.D. Smith 4 on Wikipedia. It's licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 2.5 license, and therefore I'm going to release that under the same as I work on it tonight. So this segment is released under that as well. We've got, um, and I p- apologize, but Masai Mara Typical Scenery. Uh, That's the scenery that we're going to be using tonight. It's also available on Wikipedia, and it is provided by Bjorn Christian uh, Torreson, and it's released under a slightly newer license, Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 Unported. Now, our show is released under Creative Commons Attribution 2.5 Canada, which is a similar license, and therefore in compliant with the licensing of these images. Uh, And, of course, I'm releasing this under Share Alike as well for uh, the sake of the license. So... How do you find out the licensing of your images? If you're going to use an image on something like a show, if you're going to use it on your website, you go to Google, and I'm just using Google as the example, forgive me. Uh, When you do an image search, go to your search options, and you're going to see licensing. Make sure you click on licensed for reuse with modification. That means that it is commercially available for use. You can use that legally without having to pay as long as you give the correct attribution, which is what I've just done, and you need to do the same. So you can use those in your, on your blog, and some of my blogger uh, customers have said, well, how can I get some free stock images and things like that? Well, that's one way. And then at the bottom of your blog, just say imagery used with permission 
provided by, and provide a link to the, to the file, and whatever else is required under the terms of the license, which will be detailed there. If you can't find the terms of the license, you just assume you are not legally allowed to use those images. Let's jump over to Linux, and I've got these two images as I discussed here. There they are. So how are we going to move that house into this field? Well, we've got the GNU image manipulation program. Let's bring up the image. The GIMP is a free tool. It's an alternative for Adobe Photoshop. You can get it at GIMP.org. Hey, did I mention it's free? Yeah, it's an image manipulation program, as is the title, and uh, it's going to let you do a lot of cool stuff. All right, so first of all, let's use the marquee tool. What are we up to tonight? Well, we've got a couple of things I want to teach you. This is an exercise to help you learn to copy an element from one photo and put it on another, also using the layers in order to do that. We're going to be uh, working with levels and uh, also color curves, which is a new one that we haven't covered in the series yet. And then we're going to use feathered edges to do some magic as well. So let's take a look at what we're going to do in order to achieve all of those great things. First of all, I've got this Lasso Marquee uh, free select tool is what they call it in the GIMP. Let's zoom in with Shift Plus and you can get in there. Depending on how precise you want to get, you can get right in there and we can start clicking around and you can get so precise that it's ridiculous. For the sake of this particular tutorial, I'm just going to go like that. Notice how I'm able to navigate here in a way that is so screaming fast because I can go up, down, right, no, left. <laughs> right so how do i do that that's the mouse wheel so up and down is the mouse wheel up and down and then hold my left shift key and do the same movement to go left and right left and right it makes it a lot easier to navigate this image uh, photoshop can be really herky-jerky when you're trying to get around using the marquee so here i'm just going around this you can get as precise as you'd like or just kind of get around it depending on the nature of the image and what it is that you're trying to achieve usually if i'm doing this professionally i'm going to take a lot of time to really get in here see how i've got a line there that's actually going into the trees i would bring that in like this and get right to the edge. So what I'm looking at here, you may just see a bunch of pixels, but that is a part of that log sticking out of this house. Okay, so getting in there, follow the edge, just trace over it, and we're just going to zip along for the sake of the show because we're live and we uh, want to do this in a sane amount of time. But take your time, and the more time that you take, the more accurate you get, uh, the better this is going to look in the long run. Another great feature of this free select tool in the GNU image manipulation program is, let's say you know I, I accidentally, and it happens, let's say I accidentally am going along here and I go, oh, Ah, poo, I've just clicked right there, and now I've got this marquee that's in the middle of the, the house's roof. What do I do? Now in Photoshop, again, now I might have to restart doing what I was doing because I've got this whole area here that is not selected. You might try to backtrack. GIMP makes it a lot simpler. Bring in your mouse, get right to that point, and you can drag it. There we are. Get it wherever you like and say, there we go, fixed. Okay? That's pretty brilliant. Trace around those edges. I'm going to get out here and we're going to do a really rough job just for the sake of time, folks. Um, let's get in here, in here, in here. These logs make it a little bit more time consuming if I was to actually be doing this um, to make it look perfect. But because this is just an exercise as far as I'm concerned, 
Uh, I don't have to be exact, okay? But you understand the concepts. So let's get in here. Nice that we're at the bottom because I can kind of go right along there to about there and follow along here. Grab along here and just kind of cut out the areas that uh, are not a part of the house itself. Okay. Ba -ba -da -da. This is where we insert some sexy music. Shingles, same thing. How accurate do you want to be? Get in there, and then you can get right in there and make sure that you are nice and close and tight to the image. So I'm using Shift Plus to zoom in, and then just minus um, to zoom out. No shifting, uh, no having to press Shift to zoom out. Again, the more accurate that you are, the better it's going to look in the long run. Let's just get up there. Get her done, Robbie. Get this tutorial done. Up here, ba 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 da. I'm just going to pretend I did that perfectly. And boom. Okay, so we've got this beautiful marquee around those edges. And now I'm going to hit Control C which now places that image in my clipboard, which lets me paste it into any other image tool, including this image over here. Now, this works out really well because the images are approximately um, accurate sizing. You may have to do resizing depending on the image that you're working with. Now that I've pasted that in, I have what's called a floating selection. The floating selection is not actually a layer yet, and if I unselect, it's going to make that a part of my main uh, image. So now I've lost the ability to manipulate just that layer. So let's right-click and go Layer to New Layer. Now I have two layers. That's this tool over here. If you don't have this tool, refer back to our episode where we talked about the interface, but you can right-click and go Windows, Dockable Dialogs, and you'll see one called Layers. It's also available by pressing Control-L. Now that we've got that layer, I can turn that one on and off. I can turn that one on and off. That is the beauty of layering. We can do non-destructive editing on each layer uh, as far as not affecting the underlying layer. So now I've used the Move tool to drag this picture of a house, uh, this nice little cabin here, to a spot in the image where, hey, it might actually be um, accurate positioning. And now I'm going to grab, uh, well, first of all, there's a couple things that I noticed. One is that the original picture here is really quite bright. We've got a lot of sunshine where this picture was probably taken in a darker area, a lot more shadows. So what I'm going to do first is use my Levels tool. And with that Levels tool, I can increase the brightness. Now you notice I've got the wrong layer selected, so this is affecting the underlying layer. I want to change that. Let's highlight this layer. See what I'm going to do? I'm going to use this layer and bring up my Levels tool. And we've already learned this, so I don't need to give you the tutorial on this one, but refer back to our 20 Weeks of GIMP Tips. And bring the levels up to about where you would say the original image, um, the background, the scenery is, so that we have a nice, um, accurate colorization. Um, and uh, then the next thing that I notice is that we've got a lot of green moss kind of growing on that thing. I don't think that's going to happen where we've got a lot of dry grass. So we're going to right click and go colors, curves, and you notice curves allows us to work on the full RGB, that's red, green, blue, or we can select which channel we want to use, which is green, and I want to bring that down um, so that we're able to cre uh, reduce the amount of green in the image, but watch that we don't fall into the purple spectrum. So we're going to change the um, 
curves a little bit here. So you see what I'm doing is I'm breaking into the spectrum of green. So this spectrum graph that you see in the background is my green and I'm bringing down the shadows and up the highlights just a little bit uh, and I want to make sure that that looks fairly um, accurate do the best that we can with the uh, with the source images so I think that's pretty close I can hit OK. So now the final tool that we're going to use is actually the eraser tool, which is surprising. But we've chosen a brush that is a very soft-edged brush. So that means it has a lot of feathering around the edge of that brush itself. And uh, so now if I create a big eraser and I start erasing, watch what happens. I'm going to zoom in here. I'm going to start erasing just down here. Notice I'm not touching the house I'm actually kind of just letting that feathered edge touch it and what starts to happen is that grass starts to overlap my image because it has that feathered edge so let's move over a little bit watch that we don't get too close to those um, these extremities of the uh, the logs and there we go and so if I zoom out on that you'll see that the grass is actually starting to look like it's growing up over top of the side of the bottom of the house. So now over here, same thing at the front of the house. We just kind of want to touch that. And because of that feathered edge, we've allowed some of the underlying grass. So it's actually on the layer underneath the house. However, because we've softened the edge of the house, it's allowing that to shine through. See that? And it's doing it in such a way, it's so soft, that edge, that it, it makes it look like that grass is kind of growing up around this lodge. So there we have it. We've learned a couple of different tools in the GNU image manipulation program tonight. Looks fairly accurate, and you can continue to tweak that to make it look really good. Head on over to uh, GIMP.org. That's G-I-M-P.org, and you can get that free software. It's available for Linux, Mac, and Windows, and that allows you to do everything that we did right there. Thanks, everybody, for a great time tonight. Thanks to the chat room. Thanks to you at home. And if you're watching this on YouTube, hey, give us a thumbs up. If you're not watching this on YouTube, head on over to YouTube and give us a thumbs up. And please post your comments there as well. It's a great way to interact with the community. Don't forget to check out mindtest.tv for the Pixel Shadow. This coming Sunday morning, we're going to be launching the second parkour challenge where we actually built a five level parkour challenge in mind test and uh, we have a lot of viewers participating in that episode be a part of it mindtest.tv i'll see you next tuesday night good night we hope you enjoyed the show category 5 tv broadcasts live from barry ontario canada every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern if you're watching this on demand or through cable TV, check out the local showtimes in your area at Category5.tv and find out when you can watch live and interact in the community chat room. Category 5 is a production of Prodigy Digital Solutions and is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution 2.5 Canada. We'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in.